Hey, everyone, and welcome to Don't Skip, a podcast featuring the brightest minds in advertising. I'm Zach Seckler, your host and also a comedy director and photographer. You can check out my work at zachseckler.com. My guest today is Barry Katz. Barry is an Emmy-winning creative director who's been featured in Ad Age's 40 Under 40 and Adweek's Creative 100. In the past year, Barry has worked on two big campaigns for State Farm that I'm sure you've seen. The new Chris Paul series with Jake from State Farm and The Last Dance, which won a ton of awards from all the major competitions. We talk in depth about how each campaign developed, including some major challenges that came up during production. Think celebrity no-shows and rewriting scripts on the shoot day. Barry has been crushing it as a freelance creative director, and we talk a lot about the freelancing life, how to make the transition to freelancing, how to develop a network, and some tips on how to charge for your time. There's plenty more in this episode about agency life and working with commercial directors. But before we kick this off, I have a quick request. If you have any feedback or suggestions about the show, hit us up on our email, don't skip podcast at gmail.com. Please also rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're hearing this right now. The reviews are super helpful in spreading the word and helping this podcast grow. So thank you. And lastly, before we kick things off with Barry, definitely check out his website, barryscats.com. If you are driving, exercising, or doing anything else right now, not in front of a screen, fear not, these links are all in the show notes. And without further ado, this is Don't Skip, Barry Cat. Barry Katz, welcome. Thanks for coming, man. Happy to see you. Thanks. Oh, my pleasure, my pleasure. Uh, so let's kick it off with where you're from and what has been your path into advertising? Yeah, I, I grew up in Philadelphia. I went to the University of Miami for college. It was there that I met my partner, Alex Kaplan, who we've been partners ever since. And it was kind of like, I couldn't believe when I, I I was like jumping around from major to major, I like started as like a business undecided. And then I became like a, I was actually a biology major. I was like, Oh, I'll do, I'll be a doctor like my dad or whatever. And then I took like an advertising class and I took a psychology class at the same time. And in Miami, you had at the time, at, at the time, if you were in the comm school, you had to double major. So I was like, I took an advertising class. And I couldn't believe them when they described what a copywriter does that people got paid to do that. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I was, I was like, oh, sure, I'll try that. And I'll just like, whatever, if I don't like it, I won't stay in the major, I'll try something else. And I, I did, and I liked it and got pretty good at it. And then had a professor kind of put me up for like a portfolio review at Crispin Porter Bogusky back when they were kind of in their heyday, because uh, they were based in Miami. We did, I did a portfolio review there. And it was there that I kind of started getting closer to my now partner, Alex Kaplan guy I've been partnered with since college. And he and I both got the internship out in Colorado. And yeah, we kind of have been partnered ever since. I want to ask you one other one or two other questions about the early sure. your early start. But since you mentioned your partner yeah. and that you guys have been partners since since college. Yeah. Which was at least a few years ago now, right? Yes. We've been partners for 12 years. That's the what I, I like to say that. Yeah. We've been partners for 12 years. So yeah. <laughs> 
I, I imagine that's fairly uncommon, finding a partner that early, right? Yeah, I mean, it's a little like a high school sweetheart where <laughs> there are some people that it works really well for, but for most people, I think that it's it's good to try along the way mm-hmm. other people. But it's not super common. I think that what works really well for us is we have very similar tastes, but we also kind of know how to push each other. I think that in any relationship, you learn how to develop the ways in which to communicate with one another. And being in an industry where you need to communicate, you need to have trust, you need to be able to create something that other people in the world are going to have to see and like and enjoy, that if you don't have those things, it it becomes hard to have a, a sustainable relationship of any kind. Even if your plan is only to be at an agency for a year with this person, you know, you still want to be able to not hate seeing them every day. And I know a lot of people who do. Mm-hmm. But for Alex and I, we've just kind of... And we, look, like we believe in fighting. We believe in in arguing because that's the way you get the best work. And like, are there some ideas that I have that he hates? Like, absolutely. Uh, and vice versa. But that's how we're able to get to the end product that we both believe in is but because if it passes the filter of both of us, it's probably okay. Do you come across people who are kind of almost jealous of the the long lasting, you know, work relationship that you guys have. I mean, it's it's got to be pretty special to have met somebody in college that, you know, from the beginning that you guys have great taste and you really click and have had a, a a real career together. You know, do you are people like, "Man, I wish we had that and or I wish I could find that in somebody else?" I think yes. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to be careful about how I answer. I think that some people can sometimes feel a little bit of jealousy, you know, not every creative partnership is this long. I mean, very few are. Yeah. So I think that for teams that have worked with us as like underneath us, when we were creative directors or group creative directors, you know, we pushed them if there was good creative, you know, chemistry to like figure out ways to work through problems. And then sometimes people are, don't have that creative chemistry mm-hmm. and it's not worth being tenable or it's not worth pushing forward. So yeah. I think that some people might be jealous of of that longevity. And I don't think that it's like lightning in a bottle mm-hmm. that you need to be in in this kind of long-term partnership. It works for us. Yeah. And there have been many times where we were going to break up and <laughs> there have been times where we've also, we're, you know, very, he's one of my best friends. I'm officiating. I found out last night I'm officiating his his wedding. Oh, wow. So he was one of the groomsmen in my wedding. Like uh-huh. we're, we're very close away from uh, work as well, but you know. That's great. That's wonderful. How has your work relationship changed over the years? Uh, you know, aside from just experience and getting better at what you do, has the has the nitty gritty of how you guys creatively collaborate when a new brief comes in, has that process changed at all? I think it's changed more in like we've developed as creatives and we have the experience of having done this, gone to the well mm-hmm. over and over and over again over the of over a decade. So in that respect, I think that it's it's shifted. We're able to get to ideas faster. But you know, it's I don't know that there I can say like, oh, well, we always do this when we sit down to start concepting, or we always do this. You know, Alex is a great note taker. We'll usually read through his notes and then we'll just kind of talk and and that's kind of how it's always been. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's that's great. I just wanted to dive into that a little bit because it fascinates me. It's definitely a thing that we people ask us about a lot. Yeah. I think people ask me a lot about a lot, at least. I shouldn't speak on his behalf. Right, right. The whole idea of 
having a creative partner at an ad agency has always kind of fascinated me a little bit too, because, you know, on my side as a director, as a photographer, I'm always coming into situations and I'm kind of, I'm joining that team of creatives for this finite amount of time. And I really enjoy that, but it must be so unique to kind of just get a new job in an agency and immediately be paired with a partner. And it's like, well, what if you get along? What if you don't? You know, it's kind of just like a big, yeah. a big toss up. It's kind of, a, it's an interesting phenomenon. Well, I'm kind of of the opinion that the way to success in our industry is through chemistry, right? Like we have to have chemistry with a director when we when we get on set. We have to have chemistry with concepting between the the creative partners, with creative and account and strategy and internally at an agency or the C-suite or, or the executive team, whoever it is at the agency, with all of our vendors. There is chem- chemistry is the most important thing. You don't make good work if people don't like each other. You know, it just. I mean, sure, is it possible? Yes, but the the better everyone gets along, the the more people are going to want to put into it, effort wise and with their passion. And like, that's the secret to every pitch. Like, pitches are won by companies or agencies that really like each other. Mm-hmm. They get along so well that the client, the prospective client, sees the chemistry of the group and they want to be a part of it. They already, if you're in the meeting. If you've gotten to the point where you're you're already in the discussion of we think you've got the creative bona fides, we think that you know you're we like your reputation. They're looking. It's a chemistry test. So I think it's the same thing with production with everything. It's you. It's about that relationship and how much you like each other and how good you can make the work together. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit, backing up a little bit about um, into your earlier days and you talking about your developing or having a certain taste and in common with Alex. Can you describe your taste a little bit and maybe going back to your early, you know, maybe sometime in your childhood where you, you know, you discovered advertising as something that could really be entertaining and and more than just background noise? I can't point to like, my relationship with advertising necessarily as like, I remember watching this ad, but my uncle married a Dutch girl. We're still married. They, mm-hmm. They're obviously older now, but we flew over to the Netherlands for the wedding and we stopped in London on the way. It's just my parents, my brothers and I, we were driving through London and I was on like the pull down seat in the back of a cab in London. And we pulled up next to another car, another cab with his window rolled down. And I said to him, excuse me, sir, do you have any Grey Poupon? <laughs> Which my parents are like, how does he know that ad? Yeah. How is that a thing that he isn't in his consciousness? Right. But it must have had such a lasting impact on me mm-hmm. that that is like, <laughs> it's, so it's no wonder that this is kind of where I ended up. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. When you said you pull up to another car... I was like, okay, I think I know where this is going. Yeah. And then when the roll, when it rolls down, it's funny. I did the same thing as a kid. I couldn't have been more than like seven or eight. Like, yeah, yeah. W- way too young. I had like a buddy that we would always like record radio shows and I'd be like, oh, I'll do the ad reads. Right. Being like a little kid. But why I did the ad reads, I had no idea. But that was the thing that I wanted to do. One of the ones that I remember from, I think we're around the same age from being a kid was the the first, I think it was the first Got Milk ad. Mm-hmm. where his mouth was full of, 
He was eating the a sandwich with a guy. Yeah, Adam Burr. Yes, thank you. Adam Burr, yeah. So anyway, so tell me about your about your your taste a little bit and what you gravitate to and yeah. And when you and Alex first connected in college, like how you guys knew that you were kind of on the same wavelength. Well, I, I think my taste is, I mean, that's a tough question just because I don't, I don't know that I can put my finger on it necessarily. But, you know, I think that there's certain tropes or whatever. If it, I feel like the work in our industry, all creative work at stale, the more familiar it is. So if it feels like we've seen it before or if it feels like, people won't connect to it on like a relatable level. I've worked on beer brands where where people are trying to, you know, be sentimental and, you know, break the wheel on beer. And honestly, like I don't believe that a beer consumer wants to see like a sad scene in an advertisement. Mm-hmm. Like I don't think that that's going to sell beer, but I think that sometimes people convince themselves that in order to stand out and be different, they need to do something that is going to kind of be more dour or something. Mm -hmm. So like, I think that my taste is like figuring out what's familiar and subverting it or figuring out what's familiar and going a different path. Mm -hmm. Because if it is those things, like it's, it's going to be bad. And then how Alex and I, I don't, I don't, I can't really say for sure how Alex and I kind of arrived at, at like kind of like sniffing each other's butts (laughs) uh, to find the right, you know, taste level. But, you know, I think it's it's like anything else. Like when you're spending a lot of time with someone, you talk about movies, you talk about comedy, you you talk about what things you find funny and things you don't. And when we're writing comedy stuff, like that comes through easy because I I know what to write when we're concepting and we're writing a script and I know what he's going to find funny and what he's not going to find funny. And it's same as true as with, if we're trying to strike an emotional chord, you know, it's about finding new ways to communicate with people that don't suck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you remember a first big break that you had? I don't know. I don't know what a big break constitutes in our industry, but... Uh, well, I guess the way I kind of define it is not, it's not like necessarily the first job or the first campaign, yeah. but it's the first professional accomplishment or circumstance that had, that puts you on the path that you're on now. Yeah, so I, we... We had the opportunity, we were at Gray, and this was probably in, we were like mid-level, we were a mid-level team, and I was a mid-level copywriter, and we were working on Mike's Hard Lemonade, which is like a very specific kind of brand. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're trying, you're just trying to do something like fun. It's It kind of has a reputation of being like the entry beverage. And they were, the strategy was really good, really sound. It was sometimes you uh, you need to have something different than beer. And just even something that simple was enough for myself and Alex and these other creative team that we were working with at the time, uh, Duke Wynn and uh, Lim Wynn, to kind of come up with this concept. And there was a, maybe a little bit before its time where there were three or four, I think four different setups, and each setup had four different endings. So essentially, we shot 16 different commercials, where the first half would always be the same. And then you would get one of the different endings, um, depending on when you watched it. This is, it sounds a little like obvious, maybe in 2021, but back then it was like the ESPN media people that were, that we were, they were, didn't understand like, wait, you want us to flight one ad, one commercial break, but the same ad with a different ending, Uh the next one, they didn't quite get it. But yeah, so, and we made those, it was like actually the first time that I felt like we made something that 
I was like really proud of. Mm -hmm. And it felt like we were able to create this like very bizarre work that I could show my friends. That was like a big thing for me and still is. It's like, if I can show it to my friends and them not say, Barry, this fucking sucks. (laughs) Like that's a, that's an accomplishment. Right. Cause I, and I'm not saying they have good taste. They absolutely do not. But that's at least the bare minimum bar I need to be able to pass. (laughs) Yeah. But they showed it and they were like, this is really weird. This is cool. And that was like a a cool thing for me. It did really well. And and I think that it, we, you know, it helped us get other jobs down the line Mm -hmm. and and it helped create relationships for us that we still have today. So I'm still really proud of it. Yeah. So it was the first time you were able to really create something that felt like it was within your voice and that you were really proud of. Yeah. And I think that I, I like making comedy work, but comedy isn't necessarily always something that is easy to make because comedy isn't, is so subjective, but being able to make that comedy at that moment just felt like the, every, the stars aligned and we just, it, it felt really awesome. Let's dive into, to some of the work that you've done more recently. Sure. First, let's talk about the last dance, Yeah, which was a, a very subversive, definitely checks the subversive spot and gained a ton of attention and awards can you tell us a little bit about the campaign? Sure. Alex and I were group creative directors at Translation. And one of our accounts was State Farm. What that meant was not just doing, you know, State Farm has kind of been known as the premier uh, marketer in the NBA space. Like, I think that a lot of NBA fans have grown to have, as I'm sure you're aware, have a very strong affinity for State Farm because of Chris Paul and because of their relationship with Chris Paul. And so I think that State Farm is already well-liked. The nature of the job as running that account was twofold. One, to do like the actual basketball work for the client, but also to manage their co-brand efforts. So ESPN, uh, Turner, all those companies, they all have media relationships with State Farm that include a certain amount of original content. But in order to maintain that voice, they wanted us, their creative leads at the agency, to be kind of the shepherds of that work. So we would periodically get a brief that's like, oh, this is going to be the Turner brief, or this is going to be the ESPN brief. And we would just kind of oversee it, make sure it stayed in line with whatever we were doing on the overall basketball work. And then we would stay really close in the actual creative development. You know, we were essentially just another creative director team. Each one of these partnerships, ESPN, Turner, whomever, all had their own internal creatives, but they would kind of show work to us and we would tell them what worked and what didn't work and we pushed the work. And then we would go in production and blah, 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 blah. The last dance work, State Farm had a relationship with ESPN and they were already agreed to be the sponsor, one of the presenting sponsors. I think there were only three for The Last Dance, which was like this 10-part Michael Jordan documentary or six-part, whatever it was. But it was a big deal. And it was going to be in like July of 2020. And so there was a brief that came down. ESPN worked on it. And Alex and I kind of, when we got the brief and when we got the first round of creative work, one thing that we felt was really missing from it was a touch of the nostalgia because it is very much of the documentary series is all based off of the 97 bulls. Mm-hmm. So we kind of pushed the team to really look at that era. Let's, what if we set it in the mid nineties? What if we 
went to Chicago and did personal on the street interviews. And what if we started at the anchor desk? Mm -hmm. So that was the plan. The ESPN creative director and everybody there like totally agreed. And they started developing work against that. We came up with work. We liked it enough. We presented it to the client and that was going to be the work. And we were going to go to fly to Chicago and shoot it. Then the pandemic happened and ESPN decided they were moving the um, documentary series from July up till April because they didn't have any other content to air. So we need to rush and we need to come up with something quickly. And somebody at ESPN mentioned, well, we had said, what if we got rid of the person on the street interviews? We can't shoot anything and just focused on the desk. And they were like, well, what if we did a deep fake for it? And we were like, if you can do that, I actually was really skeptical. And I'm like, I don't know that you can do it in the time because mm-hmm. we had like three weeks for that first one. Just to paint the picture for people a little bit. So when you say sports desk yeah. or at the desk, you're talking about the sports center, sure, yes. sports desk and yeah. the announcers. Yeah, do you just want to describe what happens very quickly in the spot? Sure, yeah. So and, and I'm sure anyone in advertising knows this spot and I'm going to prime people to check your website out in advance, but just to paint the picture a little bit. Oh, it's okay. So the film that they pitched to us as kind of the, after a couple of rounds back and forth was that, we would get a ESPN anchor. We had, we ended up agreeing to Kenny Maine, who we really liked personally. But at the time, he was with the company with with ESPN, and he was an ESPN a Sports Center anchor in the mid nineties. So he we had that legacy, and we felt like you could use him. And we had this idea that we would go right from the documentary to the Sports Center desk and almost make it seem like it was just a highlights package like you've seen on SportsCenter a million times before. But then he starts having these premonitions of what the future would be like. But where we as viewers in 2020, we're like, of course, we know these things, but how would he know these things? Mm -hmm. Almost taking and breaking the fourth wall Mm -hmm. to give viewers the peel back the curtain and say, but this is actually a state farm commercial. And so I was one of the skeptical people who said, I didn't think that we could do a deep fake, like a a facial remapping in time. Mm -hmm. But I was like, if you guys think we can do it in time and, you know, art class, I believe is the production company that we worked with on that. They were really unbelievably talented and ESPN and art class worked really closely in developing or hunting down the content for it, Mm -hmm. making sure that it, it would match. We didn't use any special equipment beyond just normal editing software yeah and like kenny recorded on his macbook or his or maybe his daughter recorded on her iphone uh-huh and that was it like yeah it was very uh lo-fi yeah uh, so having having the resolution be lower in four three mm-hmm. of the mid 90s i think we worked to our advantage it was just like a great collaborative process between like translation and espn and our class and everybody it was it was terrific optimum sports mm-hmm it's just a piece of original 90s sports center footage. And then you have this deep fake aspect just around his mouth, right? Just around the anchor's mouth. I'm pretty sure it's just the mouth, yes. Yeah, just the mouth. And like you said, just making these these eerie premonitions. Yeah. That, you know, and in 2020, uh, there's going to be a documentary called The Last Dance and you're going to be watching it. And it's all going to be in a commercial for State Farm. Exactly. And and we were just like really pleased with how it turned out. And it was the kind of thing where when it was done, we were like, well, this is really cool. We're really happy with this. 
I don't know if people are going to respond to it at all. I don't know what it was going to be like. Mm-hmm. And it just ended up, you know, working out. Well, I think it worked out okay. You guys won an Emmy. We did. Yeah, it's, it's right there. Right? <laughs> I'm, I'm hung. Uh, it's right here. Let's see it. Oh, nice. Doing some uh, some dumbbell lifts with that thing every day. <laughs> it's very heavy. It's very heavy. <laughs> I can tell. And you and among many other awards and recognition, it was a huge hit, right? I mean, people yeah. loved that spot. What was it like winning an Emmy? I mean, I'm looking on your website right here, and there's on your about page or under your awards, there's a, a screenshot of you and Alex <laughs> through FaceTime when you guys were cheersing. Must have been in the height of the pandemic when you guys couldn't be together, right? And um yeah. you, it obviously means a lot to you guys. Well, what's it been like to, to win an Emmy and what's it been like for your career? I mean, all the all the accolades we received from that, I mean, just the fact that people liked it and in the moment responded to it right away and was like really incredible. Winning an Emmy is bizarre because every other award in our industry, it's like, it's awesome. It's very exciting and it's validating, but you have to explain it a little bit to people. Yeah, um, right. Like you... They're, you're like, hey, I won a Clio or I won a Can Lion, and your friends yeah. are like, I guess uh, apparently a lot of my uh, my decision making is driven by by your, the people uh, around me. Your um, friend group, but <laughs> this one group of group, guys, yeah. they're the yeah, exactly. they're the barometer. Yeah, exactly. If I make them happy, that's all I need in life, apparently. But um, <laughs> no, yeah. Um, but it was like the the height of the pandemic and. Alex and I weren't together. Jamie Overcamp, who was the creative director at ESPN, great guy, and was the three of us were all stayed very, very close throughout the entire process. And that's I think why the the work ended up so good. Mm-hmm. But he was texting us earlier that day, or like a couple of days earlier, because we had like a list of all the the award shows we were entering and everything. And we had said we'd love to get it in the Emmys, but we didn't know whether or not that was really going to be possible. Mm-hmm. And he and he had kind of said like from the ESPN standpoint that he didn't, wasn't sure that it was, but then like a week earlier, he was like, Oh, by the way, we did end up getting to enter and we're nominated for the, uh, whatever the outstanding sports promotional announcement. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And so like that night he like, we were texting back and forth, watching the broadcast and it was, we were, I was with my wife and one of my wife's friends who was in town and, Alex was down in uh, Maryland where he was at the, at the time with his fiance and his parents. And it's, it's very surreal mm-hmm. uh, watching awards broadcast and them say your spot. And there's the expression of on my face <laughs> in that photo yeah. is very much how I felt, which is jubilant and surreal. And since then, people, I mean, we've had a lot of people come out of the world where people we worked with a long time ago reach out to us and and say some really nice things and you know it's definitely a thing that opens doors for you and we've we've been busy since then mm-hmm. freelancing and i think that it helps in that respect and but um, more i think because the work itself speaks for itself and kind of got a bigger reputation mm-hmm. absolutely what what was the process like for um you said the production company was art class and the, the director that's listed, at least on the credits that I saw, is Sean Collings. Yeah. You know, what was the role of the director in this, you know, with, you know, there's no, you're not shooting anything. And was it, was it all in directing the voice performance and working with you guys on 
any of the beats in the script or what what was the what was the process like for finding the director and what was their role in the project? I think art classes, first of all, art class is a phenomenal production partner that they just have unbelievable capabilities. But they have an existing relationship with ESPN and ESPN, we kind of let them take the lead on that and lead the the process of how they were going to get it done. Like I said, I was a little skeptical that they could get it done in the three weeks until we needed a ship. But they were like, we've worked with these guys in the past. This guy, this this person, Sean, is excellent. And I, Sean was part of the team that communicated directly with Kenny and Kenny Maine and got the performance. And then throughout the process of the edit, I think work directly with the editor and the VFX people to make sure that the mapping looked right. You know, it took a couple, it took a couple rounds of making sure the the mouth looked believable enough. Mm-hmm. But Sean stayed on top of that the whole time. And and I'm trying to remember actually if we did script revisions. I think most of the script revisions happened before the record. I think the butt fumble joke and some of the other, we had like shorter 15s that I'm not sure where they are, but all that came together before before we went to Kenny. And I think maybe before Sean was involved, but I'm not entirely certain. Was it a triple bid situation and you guys were looking at different directors or was it more of just, it started with a production company and they recommended somebody? I think the latter. Um, okay. I can't say for certain. I can't say for certain, to be honest. I had just had the twins like <laughs> six months earlier, four months yeah. earlier. So I, I wasn't sleeping great. <laughs> so there, there are moments that are a little bit spotty for me, but yeah. I think that it was, it was more, we had a ESPN had a relationship with art class and really wanted to see if they could pull this, this thing off in which they absolutely did. Obviously. Mm-hmm. While we're on the topic of State Farm, let's talk about some other State Farm work you've done. Sure. Which is completely different in scope and content. Yeah. The new Chris Paul series of spots with the new Jake from State Farm, Kevin Mims, mm-hmm. and Alfonso Ribeiro. Yes. So do you want to talk? I'm sure everyone's seen it because those were heavily they They broadcast. had a heavy run. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, what, what, when was that, by the way? What, when were those running? Those were running like in um, early last year? They ran during the, 19, the 1920 season, the season that ended in the bubble. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Okay, because I remember I also did some State Farm work with Kevin and I had just, I think I was just awarded a job when those spots were just starting to come on TV. And it, he was yeah. like, it was, they were just everywhere. I was like, oh, wow, I'm going to be doing this campaign. That's so cool. So, and to be clear, I didn't work on the campaign that we're about to talk about. But anyway, can you can you tee us off a little bit about that? Maybe start talking about the initial brief and then how the campaign developed? Yeah, we were looking to do another round of work with Chris Paul. It's something that we've, we've you know, he's so iconic and as it relates to the brand. And we were, this was before we knew that Jake was going to be, I don't think we knew that Jake was going to be in the spots until production. Like, I, I think we may have been on the ground in LA um, and had to kind of refocus some things for that reason. But it was definitely the kind of thing where we were looking at a New Year's work and we wanted to do something that felt different, but still felt like we could be a little bit subversive with it and entertain NBA audiences. Because that's really your goal with any State Farm NBA brief is continue the brand affinity that NBA fans feel for State Farm. And Chris Paul is like just like a, such a natural guy at that. He's he's really turned into a pretty good actor. Yeah, he is. Yeah, it's it, he's great. 
and a really nice, really nice. I, I maybe NBA in on court, maybe his reputation is different, but interpersonally, every time I've had to deal with him or his family, like they're absolutely wonderful. And our account team of translation, Susanna Swartley and Julia Farber maintain like a, a very close personal relationship with him and his team. But we knew we needed to do right by the brand and do right by Chris. But we really started getting into this, this idea of kind of like mistaken identity mm-hmm. and like what kinds of things, if this person who was obsessed with, I think we almost started in the realm of like, they were obsessed with Chris from the commercials and we kind of like moved it into more just obsessed with Chris period. And then you kind of, you take some of that obsession off mm-hmm. as you get into the actual scripts because I think that that might be a little bit too much. <laughs> yeah. um, but My little, little creepy. Yeah. And we, yeah. you know what, to be honest, we didn't think of anyone else other than Alfonso Riviera. Oh, really? Like we very early on, we're like, we need to get Carlton. Yeah. Like he <laughs> would be perfect. Uh, Lucas and Dupree were the creatives on it. Lucas Kelly and Dupree Bostic were the creatives on it. And they just like, round after round, would come in with these like incredibly funny, borderline creepy scripts. Yeah. Where something would happen and Chris would always be put into like a really compromised position mm-hmm. and then be able to break out be, by this guy and then be able to break out and, you know, challenge it. Mm-hmm. The process was like relatively painless. I mean, we did, there were challenges that we faced kind of as production neared. We we worked with Andreas Nilsson and I want to say Biscuit. Yeah, yeah. Director Andreas Nilsson with, with Biscuit, yep. Yeah, and he was great. had had a lot of amazing little insights and little ways to kind of push the the film further. Right before production was when we got word that we needed to include Jake in the spots, and we were kind of put in a position where we needed to change some of the dialogue so that it, it felt more natural. And there was a spot. There was like this was the the shoot where multiple times we ended up shooting a commercial that was not scripted, mm-hmm. but just because something happened or something was too long, one of the spots was like, uh, we were like at the day of the shoot and we were like, hey, we think this is gonna, you're not gonna be able to tell the story in less than like a minute and a half. So we had to like reconcept the spot on the spot. Is that is that the one with the where he comes back to his high school and he's like stuck in the locker? No. No, oh no. It's not. That that one's that one's unadulterated. Okay. Almost. No, it's the one in the parking garage. Oh, okay. But there's another, there was supposed to be a celebrity in one of the spots that the celebrity didn't show. I don't want to say who it is, but the celebrity didn't show up. <laughs> yeah, don't say. The, the oh, day of the shoot. It'll be a lawsuit or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> and it was like four hours late and we were like supposed to get start shooting soon. And we got word that he wasn't going to come. And so oh we had God. to rewrite the spot, a different spot. So you had to rewrite the the parking garage spot. You guys had to rewrite it on the spot. Two spots: the parking garage spot and the and the like workout spot. Both had to be rewritten the day of. Oh my god! Yeah, that sounds so stressful. Uh, you know, it was you know State Farm. To their credit, were really good partners, as I'm sure you're aware. And like they were very happy to work with us in figuring out a solution that would still be you know still fit in the realm of their of their universe that they've created and still have strong affinity towards for NBA fans to feel but yeah it was it was stressful it was <laughs> it, it was brought challenges yeah and was that our i mean you're the copywriter so you're in especially under the gun right was did you have anyone were you working with with the director at all and like yeah. you know what was that what was that like 
Andreas is great. He's got like a, a really beautiful sense of humor and a really collaborative, you know, he, he was very collaborative with us. He actually like really took our, our mid-level team under his wing and like worked with them very closely. And because if we, we established that relationship and really firmed up that relationship with him over the course of the two weeks or whatever that we were in pre-production so that when those things happened, Lucas, the copywriter, and Dupree, the art director, and Alex and I were able to kind of just talk things through with him and like, what if we tried this? And he was like, yeah, we could do that or we could do this. And we were like, yeah, but um, it was like very much like improvising the spots on the, the day of and then mm-hmm. be like, okay, we're going to do that. And then we would go to the client and they would be like, okay, yeah, great. Let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> very stressful, but we, we it worked out. Yeah. Yeah. And what was the process like for for finding Andreas? How did you guys end up picking him for this for this campaign? We had we had a couple of different directors. I believe that was a triple bid where we, you know, I've always admired Andreas's work. His all these stuff is great. His, you know, the Hornbacher stuff is phenomenal. Like I think his sense of humor is so like esoteric, but uh, while being like very human mm-hmm. and very visually grounded. Yeah. I think that we could have, I would have, I wish we could have let him, you know, have a little bit more free reign visually on this, uh, on State Farm, but it, you know, it's a big brand, but yes, the, the process, we, we had a couple other directors that were in the running for this, that we, you know, we had really amazing treatments and we had a couple of really good options and we were, we were split on who to go with. I'm, I'm blanking who the other directors were now, but the, the treatments were wonderful and just kind of one of those things where you're left with having to make a decision, not just off of the treatment, which does, it has to speak to somebody who is going to understand sports. You know, so often I do a lot of these sports brands and if the, if the director doesn't understand sports, it becomes harder, but it, it, it was the kind of thing where we looked at the different directors. We looked at their volume, their, their library, their of work and what they've done in the past. And we just kind of made the call of like, you know, we wanted to work with Andreas and that's where, where we ended up going. Generally speaking, when you're looking at directors, yeah. you know, obviously the real the real is the table stakes, right? You have to have the real. It has to be appropriate for the project and in some way, you know, whether they've done similar spots or similar sense of humor, timing, all that stuff. What about the creative call and the and the treatment? How much of a difference, how much are you weight do you put on that? And is is one ever more important than the other? Or is it just part of the kind of holistic package? I would say that, honestly, I would say that their body of work is kind of what gets them in the door. And it's like, it's maybe like 10% or 15%. It gives you a visual backbone of understanding kind of what it's going to look like. Mm -hmm. But you have to take that and adapt it to your vision and your, you know, your creative, which it doesn't, you know, sometimes you go to the director because not because they've, or because they don't have something like that in their reel. So I think the call and the treatment are hugely important. I'm like I, I said earlier, I'm a big believer in chemistry. That chemistry starts on the call and getting a director who's engaged but affable and wants to seems like they want to do this job and want to build a relationship with you that's gonna last longer than you know the shoot days. Because you really creatives want a director that is going to continue to give their opinion before the shooting starts to have a vision that they can see throughout the entire process 
And then after shooting ends, when you're in the edit and, you know, I always enjoy getting a director's cut and I enjoy it when directors stay involved. And especially if there's going to be like a VFX heavy, you know, spot, I want to know what the director thinks about these things because I am just one man and I have one opinion. I want to get as many different opinions as possible because if we can reach a consensus on something being great, that's way better than two people thinking it's great and one person thinking it's just okay. Mm -hmm. I think the call is where that kind of relationship is, you know, it's seedlings are planted and the treatment is where my partner and I make the decision because we're look, we've had a conversation. We can tell whether or not we like somebody or if they're going to put the effort in to it. And then those pages, the visuals on those pages and the writing are so incredibly important. We did this job once with Nicholas Winding Refn, where the words were just so beautiful that I just, I saw everything so clearly and I felt moved on like a, a basketball, you know, commercial with, with Clay Thompson and Michael K. Williams, you know, mm-hmm. it was it just like, it was very well thought out. The page came to life. And then the visuals are really important. A lot of times you get a treatment with like, you sometimes you get treatments with like the same, you get three different treatments with the same photos. And it's like, <laughs> yep. But it's, it, or sometimes you get treatments with no photos at all or very little. Mm-hmm. And that, it's such a huge mistake. The more effort you feel in the pages, the more me, and I know that that's a double-edged sword because you don't want to put effort into something that you may not think you have a chance at or something like that. But that is, I've 100, I've had a terrible call with people and had the, their treatment just be so good that I feel like I can't not go with them and vice versa. Oh, interesting. I've had great calls where, the treatment sucked so bad I, where I was like, let's take a shot on this person. Like their reel was like pretty good, but not like maybe great. And their, tr- their call was amazing. And then I got the treatment. I'm like, Oh, okay. <laughs> what, what other, can you, any other mistakes that you see directors making or specific things about treatments that you would advise against? I don't know. I mean, I think that everyone's treatment is different. I, I really look to, I read everything. I we I read everything two or three times because I want I want a, as clear a picture as I possibly can before I go to the the client and say this person is the right person for this job because they it's it's my skin in the game your skin in the game like it it really um, I'm just I'm trying to think of specific examples that I of no that's fine I will say it's so nice to hear when you said that you read the treatment two or three times. That just like I read all the treatments. That makes my heart expand because it's. I mean, you 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 can only imagine how much time and effort goes into putting together a treatment, and sometimes you know, oftentimes you don't know what really happens, right? Like you don't know yeah. if if everybody reads it or some people just kind of skim it over. And it's just this whole like mental back and forth of like, well, should I, am I even, you know, is this even going to get seen? And, you know, is this, is this nuance in the language that I use at the time I put into selecting these images, will it get appreciated? You know? So the fact that you, that you said that is just, is really, um, is heartening. It's no, it's, I know how much effort it takes. I've, I've never written a treatment. Um, people, whatever I've been reached out to to write treatments, but I have never written a treatment. Uh-huh. But I can appreciate how much work it takes to to make something that because you're essentially this I'm I'm pitching for this project and I've pitched a million times 
And I know, I know how I would feel if the work that I put into it wasn't valued. But that's not the only reason why I do it. I want to know the vision inside and out so that when a client asks me a question about it, I can answer. This is what they're going to do. This is what it's going to be like. I read, not only do I read it like three, two or three times, I save all the treatments and I will go back to them. Because if I'm trying to remember like who did what and, you know, mm-hmm. stuff like that. So you look at them throughout the, throughout the process of pre-production and production and post? For sure. Yeah, yeah. for sure. I mean, I, I'm not, by no, I would never like take one person's ideas and pass them off as my own or, or pass it along to a director. Um, but I, I do like, I value those, those treatments a lot. I, one of my favorite things is Alex and I have used the same producer on a lot of jobs. He's kind of our third partner, Matt Flaherty, great guy. He was the executive producer at translation. He was with us at Anomaly before that. I think he went to TBWA in between, but, and he's freelance now as well. But he, one of my favorite things about the process is when he says the director needs another day, which I've never once have had a problem with because as long as we have time in the schedule and Matt says it's okay, that means it's fine. Um, and I'd rather another day for them to make it great than have it kind of work in progress. Mm-hmm. And then I go to sleep and then it's like, oh, he'll be like, oh, we'll get in the morning and I'll go to sleep and I'll wake up and Matt wakes up ungodly early because he's his kids are even older than mine now. And I'll have it in my in my email when I wake up and I'll lay in bed and do that first pass where you're in bed just kind of like getting to get excited about the work again. Cause mm-hmm. really over time you just fall in and out of love with the work over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. What happened with the state farm work, it happens every time. Yeah. And when you see someone else share their vision for your work, it makes you fall all in love with it, in love with it all over again. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, we're just talking about treatments and, and how much work goes into it. And, you know, obviously every director doesn't get the job, right? Mm-hmm. And then you you were talking about your experience with with pitching ideas and pitching on work and and it doesn't always go well, right? There's always there's a lot of rejection. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how you deal with rejection? I would say I deal with rejection uh, a couple different ways. You know, it's like it's like your phases of uh, of grief, uh, stages <laughs> of grief. But yeah. you know, I think if it depends on how much you put into it, right? Like if it's if it's like an idea that I throw at Alex that I think is really cool, but he thinks is like, uh, I think it's a bad idea. I've, I'm like a goldfish. I can forget mm-hmm. about it right away. Like I, <laughs> like I respect his creative opinion enough that I, it doesn't hurt me at all. I just move on. If it's like a pitch that we've spent like six months working on and we're in the final two or we've been in pitch. I can't, I shouldn't say the client before, but where we found out we won and then some shenanigans happened and we lost. Oof. And where you don't, there's nothing to do. Yeah. Those are the kind of moments where, you know, Alex and I and the rest of the team and go out to a bar and rack up a pretty big tab. And (laughs) we, you know, I come home very late that night and my wife feels a lot of sympathy for me. And then, you know, I smart, I feel not great for a couple weeks and like, fuck them. Yeah. And then I, I, you move on and you move on to the next thing. That's the nature of our job is like there are meetings that go well and there are meetings that don't go well. And it, it could be a client one day feels one way or a creative director or someone feels one way. And, and that, that's that. Yeah. So it's, I try not to take it too personally, but you know, it, it happens. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about 
freelancing. Can you talk a little bit about the process? I know that freelancing has become increasingly popular. It has. You know, partially by design and almost, you know, supply demand within the agency world right now, and especially how things have changed since the pandemic. But can you paint a little bit of a picture for me as, you know, I don't know a lot about uh, your side of things on the on the, the agency side. Um, I'm familiar with being a freelance director, a freelance photographer, but yeah. I have no idea what it's like to be a freelance creative director. Can you talk a little bit about like the just the granular side of of how it works and um, sure and what the experience is like when you're on an actual project? When we're on a project or when we're trying to get projects? Let's start with trying to get a project. Might be more interesting. So I would say it's. We're very lucky. Alex and I are very lucky. We've established ourselves. We've worked at a lot of different places over the years. So we've met a lot of people. And we really push to maintain relationships and leave good impressions. On top of that, we have a book that we're really proud of and I think has gained a little bit of notice over the years. Mm -hmm. And let me just also say that you are, you're in the Ad Week 100, the Ad Age 40 Under 40. You've won an Emmy. You've won many, many awards. You've done a lot of, of really high-profile work. So just to add I'm that I'm glad in. you said it because I didn't <laughs> want to say it, but I'm glad that. No, uh, no but no, it's, it, all those things help, right? Yeah. Like we have gotten a reputation among creative managers, uh, creative directors that we are friends with or are friends of friends or who, people who just like our work and know and look up our work on credits. And that's why if a place tells you, oh, we don't put our credits up, like that is... Grade A manipulation. You need to demand that your credits are accurate and visible um, because it's not about the job you have. It's about the job you're going to need someday. Mm-hmm. And as I've hired people before and I look at work that I I really like and I look at see who the creatives are. But anyway, this is a long way of saying we've been really fortunate. We get reached out to a couple times a week about our availability and we take jobs based off... How does that happen, Barry? Is it... Do people email it directly or do you... Like, is there a network or? No, we, we don't use, we don't really use any of the networks. I mean, maybe I, I don't use any of the networks. People email me directly. My email is on the website. I have students email me. I have creative recruiters email me, other creative directors all the time. Uh, and they'll just say like, hey, love your work. You know, sometimes uh, a director who has a podcast emails you <laughs> and says like, hey, can we talk? You know, I feel like just, I'm in a... Uh... A sports center commercial, Barry. <laughs> <laughs> but you, whatever, like people email me and, and I'm usually pretty good. Maybe it'll take a couple of days depending on how busy we are. And then we take jobs based off of, you know, if if we're available or if we feel like we have the bandwidth, how the client that it is, the opportunity, you know, our, we say our rate usually in the course of the conversation. And, you know, we have some flexibility there, but, you know, you, you don't want to be go too below or anything. And those are the, kind of the, the deciding factors. And if it's like a friend or something, usually that, or if we have an existing relationship with them, that usually um, changes things a little bit as well. What is it like, you know, I don't want to talk about actual numbers, but what is it like, I imagine your rate goes up after you've won a certain amount of awards or you have a certain kind of clout that you gain in the industry. Like what, how do you, how do you go about calculating like what that is, and is that a whole like, you know, is it is it hard to do that, or are there are kind of industry established kind of norms within within rates? 
day rates? It's tough because I'm a, I'm a big believer in you know salary transparency, and I think that the way we get to equity is by being more transparent about dollar amounts. But that being said, I don't know that I'm going to share dollar no, amounts. No, no, I don't I'll want you. No, no, I don't want you. I, to, yeah, no, but but what I'll say is this: I I actually misspoke. This is actually my fourth time freelancing. When I first freelance, it was before I ever got a job. It was my first couple of days in New York, and. I freelanced before I started at KBSP and they offered, and I said, they offered me $350 a day, mm-hmm. which in, this is like 2010. Mm-hmm. And I was so excited about that, they, <laughs> obviously. And then like, by the time next time I was freelancing, I was asking for a thousand dollars a day and getting it. Yeah. And then, and, cause I was like a mid-level. Uh, and you know, I think that every time you kind of go through the process of, moving up through your career, that dollar amount goes up mm-hmm. appropriately. Yeah. Did our dollar amount go up after we had a, a really good year? Uh, a little bit. Yeah. But <laughs> as it should. We're, but we're also not in the interest in gouging anybody. Like we understand, you know, how long somebody wants us yeah. might affect that. Mm-hmm. How long do you generally, how long are you on a project for? Is it a week, a month? I've done a job where we were booked for two days before. And I've done a job where we were booked for 93 days. So, you know, it can, it can get pretty long. Yeah. But it's, it's really like what the project is and what the, the client is comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Is there a lot of, you know, like you said, now you, you're getting inquiries really regularly. You know, a few years back when you started freelancing, was it kind of, were there a like long, slow periods or... Were you always kind of pretty busy? When we were freelance earlier in our career, there were there were probably spells of a couple of weeks or or maybe even like a month, a month and a half where we didn't get a job. You have to be emailing people. If you're freelancing and you're not actively getting stuff, it's not necessarily because you're a bad creative. It's just your name isn't out there. The people who need who need to know who you are don't know that you exist. Mm-hmm. So it's about finding ways to get out there and be respectful of people. Like people get a lot of emails as a person who's gotten emails throughout his career as a a creative director, as a group creative director, where people are trying to get a job. And I I respect that, but I also am doing my job and working and running my accounts and a creative recruiter there. It's like one of the most thankless jobs in the industry because you're left to staff accounts that are either woefully understaffed or just need some help in that moment. And they're getting pressure internally. And then they also get a lot of people emailing them. Mm-hmm. So reaching out to people is a great thing. Mm-hmm. You just have to be you know, smart in how and when you're doing it. I just have two more questions for you. One is about, you mentioned how you try and be really active with maintaining relationships uh, and how important that is as a freelancer. Can you illustrate what exactly are some things that you do to maintain work relationships? So people that you're not, you know, that you're not friendly with and or friends with, right? That you wouldn't just go out and have a drink with and and talk about yeah. life. But you know, how do you maintain relationships with with folks that are just more on the kind of professional level? You want to stay on their radar. What are some specific things that you do? I mean, I I self promote. Like when we get an award or when something like that happens, I post about it on LinkedIn or on Instagram or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I have those people are in my network, both my Instagram network and my LinkedIn network. The same works both ways, right? Like if it's someone I, I'm not friends with necessarily, but we follow each other on Instagram because we work together and I see they posted work or I see 
a little thing. Like I'll I'll absolutely say like, wow, I, I can't believe that. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. I, I also like I text people all the time that I'm like close with, but not necessarily close friends, you know, um, just to stay top of mind. Cause you never know who is asks this editor who, hey, I we need a creative team. Do you know anyone great? And they'll be like, Yeah, you gotta talk to Alex and Barry or someone like that. You know, I also, I'll go golfing with people. I'll, mm-hmm. you know, if, if there's, and if there's a drinks function that I can make, I, I try to go. Or if there's a dinner, I try to go as much as possible. Any advice for more junior creatives who are maybe at an agency and they want to start freelancing, they've never done it. Any advice for those folks? You got to believe in yourself. That's like a, a really cliche thing to say, I know, but... <laughs> Deciding to go freelance is, you know, it's hard in that you're leaving the comfort of the job. You know, I would say maybe if you're doing it for the first time and you're like a pretty junior creative, if you're like in a situation that's toxic or if you're in a situation where you feel like your ideas aren't being heard, like you should talk to a mentor, someone that you trust and decide if it's a it's a good call for you and your career. A lot of times they're going to say, yeah, because Freelancing can be really good, both money-wise, but also for exposure and getting you in the door different places, you know? I think that if you're a junior creative and you're anxious about going freelance, I would start going freelance, trying to go freelance before you quit. Oh, interesting. Okay. Or starting relationships before you quit, if you're if you're anxious about it. Mm-hmm. I have a little bit of money saved up. Know that it could be a month that you may not work. And then it may take another month after that for them to pay you. So two months is not a good, is not a bad uh, plan Mm -hmm. financially to be able to swing. But that being said, like you can get fired at any time from one of these companies. It doesn't matter if you're the best creative in the world. Like sometimes just it happens. Yeah. Well, I got the one time I got fired, the CCO told me that we were two of the best creatives he had, but we've been floating for too long. And we were like, okay. And we left. And we didn't have two months planned out, but we left and we went and got drunk on a Tuesday and had brunch. <laughs> and we it was the day Grand Theft Auto Five came out, so we played Grand Theft Auto Five for a couple hours, and then you know, and then the next day or a couple of days later, after you get take a little bit of time for your mental health, start emailing people and being like, "Hey, I know we don't know each other, but here's you know, I wouldn't necessarily say I just got fired, but." <laughs> I would say, like, I'm looking for freelance work. Yeah. Um, I'd love if you consider me. Well, it's certainly worked out for you. Uh, it's been a real pleasure chatting with you, Barry. Uh, where can people find and follow you? My book is at bscats.com. I also think I own big-hollywood.com, which is just a joke nickname <laughs> that a friend gave me. Okay. But, uh, and then, I, you know, whatever, I'm on Instagram and Twitter and LinkedIn. All right, Barry. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Zach. Thank you again to Barry Katz for coming on the podcast. This was a great conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find out more about Barry on his website, barryskatz.com. I am your host, Zach Seckler, and you can check out my comedy directing and photography work on my website, zacksackler.com. A new episode of Don't Skip will be out in two weeks. Thank you all for listening. And until next time, don't skip those good ads. <laughs>